1: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay. Plus taxes and fees. Phone fees 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com.
0: Welcome to KCBS In Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news
1: this week. This is KCBS In Depth.
0: Already a month now into 2019, and the Christmas music may be long gone, but there are some seasonal sounds that just won't go away. (laughs) Yep, it's definitely going around this time of year, as it always does. I'm Keith Manconi, and on this edition of In Depth, we're going to be taking on the two banes of this season the flu and the common cold. In the first half of the program, it is flu season, and it does seem like we're getting off easy so far, especially compared to the deadly and severe season we had last year, but that could all change quickly.
2: There's always the possibility that a new or novel virus could pop up.
0: We'll discuss why it is that even with flu season well underway, it's still important to get a flu shot, if you haven't already then in the second half of course all parents want to keep their kids healthy and cold free but new survey results show that well over half are using cold prevention methods that have absolutely no basis in science
3: wet hair doesn't cause colds viruses cause colds
0: sorry to pop your home remedy bubbles but first up before we get to that let's talk about what's happening with the flu this year To get a handle on that, I spoke with both Art Reingold, he heads the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health, and also I spoke with Dr. George Hahn, who is the Deputy Health Officer with the County of Santa Clara's Public Health Department. Here is that conversation. Uh, Art Reingold, thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. And George Hahn, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for having me. So I want to start our conversation about this year's influenza spread by taking a look at last year, because, of course, last year was a particularly severe year. It got a lot more media attention than we're getting this year. Uh, I think the estimates are something like 80,000 people succumbed to the illness last year. Uh, So let's uh, start with you, Art. If you could tell us a little bit about why was last year such a bad year for the disease? Well, the,
1: the the reason that uh, influenza uh, hospitalizes and kills people uh, is a combination of factors. One is that they don't have immunity to that virus. Uh, the other is that they often have underlying illnesses that predispose them to becoming very sick. And so each year, the influenza virus that circulates varies uh, somewhat, uh, and even the different strains that circulate can vary. So... The honest answer is that it's a combination of which flu viruses were circulating, which vaccines people did or didn't get, uh, and, and, and how sick they were from other illnesses in the first place. Um, that determines whether we have a good flu year or a bad flu year.
0: And it was it was the strain in particular, I believe it was H3N2 last year, that uh, contributed to why it was so bad. Tell me a little bit about why the strain, which strain it is, matters so much.
1: Well, for reasons we don't entirely understand, some, some flu strains are associated with more illness and death than infection with other flu strains. And I would argue we don't exactly know why that is. George may know better than I do, but... but um, I think that's one of the mysteries, if you will. Um, so historically, um, the seasons where the H3N2 uh, flu viruses predominate, uh, on average, tend to, tend to be more severe uh, than the H1N1 predominant seasons or the influenza B seasons. But, but, you know, that's just a broad generalization.
0: All right. And before we move on to this year, George, is there anything that you would add to why last year was so bad?
2: Well, there's some thought that uh, H3N2 strains are a little bit more um, uh, easy to combine and uh, and change, and so um, there may be a little bit uh, uh, more diversity in um, the 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 virus, and so people may not have immunity to to that virus. It also may be that the um, the vaccine, uh, it, for whatever reason, doesn't work as well because. Um, It changes uh, over time. Uh, Influenza vaccine is made months in advance of the actual flu season. And so uh, between the time that uh, they start production of the vaccine and the time that um, the flu season hits, uh, the H3N2 viruses uh, tend to uh, change a little bit more.
0: Yeah, it's 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 one strain that tends to mutate more than others.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: And so it's already a moving target that you're trying to shoot at when you're making those vaccines. And in the case of H three N two, it's moving even more.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's the idea. Um, but like Art says, we we still don't know exactly why that why that happens, or if that's exactly what's happening. But that's kind of um, the underlying theory, at least.
0: All right. So that gives us some background on the flu season that we were up against last year. Uh, Let's turn our attention now to the flu season that we're up against this year. We're right smack dab in the middle of it. And by all accounts, just based on the media reporting that I'm seeing, it seems like a much milder season than last year. Although uh, I do also see reports of in some areas there was a slight uptick in uh, flu cases in the last couple of weeks. So I'm going to turn things over to George. How is it looking from here in the Bay Area?
2: So here in the Bay Area, uh, it's true, we uh, so far are experiencing a relatively mild flu season. Um, and we know this by uh, the various things that we track. We look at uh, the, the people who are coming into hospital emergency departments who are exhibiting influenza-like illness. Um, we look at uh, the number of people who have died or um, have required intensive uh, care. Uh, in hospitals, and so far this year, uh, there have been fewer deaths and fewer uh, patients requiring ICU care. Um, In addition, there have been um, a fewer percentage of patients who are showing up in hospital emergency departments with influenza-like illness.
0: And what is the strain that we're facing down this year? Uh,
2: This year, predominantly, we're seeing uh, H1N1, uh, which we all know from the uh, 2009 uh, H1N1 pandemic.
0: And what, is that an easier one to deal with, or what can you tell us about that particular strain?
2: It tends to affect folks who are younger, actually. Um, in in uh, other years, uh, it's older adults who tend to be severely ill and die, and uh, H1N1 uh, affects younger folks a little bit more. Um, but the good news is that the vaccine uh, appears to be quite effective, uh, usually against H1N1 strains.
0: Do we know how effective the vaccine this year is?
2: So CDC puts out uh, estimates of vaccine effectiveness around February of every year, so we don't know yet uh, what those estimates will be. But based on what we know so far in this flu season, uh, I I would guess that it's uh, likely to be quite effective this year.
0: Quite effective, and when there is a season where it's looking quite effective, does that affect at all the rate at which people get the vaccine?
2: That's a really good question.
0: Does it seem like people pay attention to that kind of thing? Yeah,
2: I think, so, you know, you had talked earlier about how last year was a severe season, and some folks did say uh, that part of the reason for that may have been that fewer people got vaccinated last year. Um, There were um, early reports out of Australia that vaccine effectiveness was quite low, and that, I think, depressed um, the the depressed turnout in a way. You know, the, the, the number of people who got vaccinated was lower than in an average flu season year. And that may have contributed to the severity of the season. Um, It turned out, though, um, the vaccine wasn't that much worse than an average year. I think CDC ended up saying that it was 40% effective. And usually vaccine effectiveness is around 40 to 60%. So it it actually wasn't as bad as people had initially feared.
0: Mm. So speaking of those early reports, that touches on the issue of monitoring. And I'm curious to hear a little bit more about How it is that health officials such as yourself go about that monitoring, uh, monitoring the spread of the disease. Of course, that's a really important part of the job is knowing how bad it's going to be this season, predicting where it's going to show up, what form it's going to show up in. Uh, You mentioned Australia there a second ago. So clearly uh, you're looking pretty far afield when you do this work. Tell me a little bit about how that monitoring works and how that translates into predictions uh, about the flu season here in the Bay Area.
2: Well, certainly the national CDC uh, monitors what is going on with flu around the world. And so they're working, partnering with countries around the world to see um, how flu season is going, what uh, viruses are circulating in their countries, and to try to use, um, for example, what's going on in the southern hemisphere to predict what might go on in the northern hemisphere uh, half a year later. Um, But for me, you know, I I do look at uh, the CDC's weekly flu reports. Uh, The California Department of Health also puts out a weekly flu report, and we put out our own uh, Santa Clara County flu report. And so our sources of information in the county um, include uh, hospital uh, uh, visits, uh, emergency room visits for influenza-like illness. As I mentioned, we we, we request that uh, hospitals report to us whenever they have patients who die. From the flu or who uh, require intensive care Uh, and we actually hold a weekly flu call with all of the hospitals in the county where we discuss uh, how many patients they're seeing who you know are they are they sick have they died and so that really allows uh, not only me but the other hospitals to get a sense of how flu is progressing uh, in this season at that time
0: a weekly flu call mm-hmm. uh, something you look forward to.
2: yeah, uh, I do actually. <laughs> it's a chance to uh, get to know your partners. Uh, you know our hospital partners are really important and for them to get to know each other so <laughs> that's important.
0: yeah. so of course, the one thing that people say over and over again about a disease like the flu is that it's very unpredictable and that it can change very quickly. So you know based on what you're saying, it looks like we're doing pretty good so far this year. How quickly could that change?
2: Yeah, I, I think your guess is as good as mine. So uh, it, it could certainly change uh, at any moment. Uh, there's always the possibility that a new or novel virus could, could pop up. Um, and that's what happened in 2009. Uh, you know, we had our regular flu season and then in April, May, all of a sudden we had this new virus pop up that, that no one had, uh, or a few people had immunity to. So um, that's not common, uh, but it could happen.
0: Mm. And where are we in the timeline in terms of flu season right now?
2: Right now, I'd say we are in the middle of flu season. So flu season is underway, and uh, usually it lasts until uh, April or even May.
0: And uh, turning things back over to uh, Art Reingold, Art, maybe expand on that a little bit more. In your experience, uh, how cautious should we be at this point in the flu season that the trends that we're seeing now are going to persist or, you know, should we still be prepared for there maybe being some rapid uh, changes that could see things getting worse?
1: Well, I think George is right that, that one can be cautiously optimistic uh, that, that, uh, you know, that by the time the flu se- this flu season is over, uh, that we'll be able to, 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 say in retrospect, it was a, a milder flu season. I, you know, I do, I do think we, we, we know that from year to year, there can be substantial variation in when the flu peaks, when it reaches its peak. Uh, some years it can be a month or two earlier than other years. So, uh, and, of course, it, 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 it tends to peak at different times in different parts of the United States. So we can have peak activity in the southeast and then not have peak activity in the west until later or, uh, you know, something like that. A lot of this is influenced by people's travel patterns, uh, and and weather, and, uh, and a number of other things. So I, I'm cautiously optimistic uh, that nothing dramatic is going to happen. But, but we do have another couple months of flu season ahead of us.
0: And uh, I'll, I'll throw this to George first, but I'm interested in an answer for both of you. Uh, would you say that we learned anything from last year's particularly difficult flu season? I mean, was it a season that just the stars aligned and it was bad for perfectly predictable reasons that we understand pretty well, or was it the case that things happened that we weren't expecting and and we really took some lessons away from that?
2: I'll definitely be curious to hear what Art thinks about this question, but my opinion is that um, uh, we know that flu can be really bad, and last year was a bad year, and I think for us in public health it was just another reminder of how bad flu can get. I think it's easy because uh, flu changes every year, and so we never know how bad it's gonna get, and um, when it does hit, then we're like, oh, wow, it really is this bad, and, and this is why we have all these policies and procedures and protocols in place that you know we've set up over the years. And yeah, the same thing goes with the entire healthcare community, the, the hospitals and uh, et cetera. They, they all have flu plans every year because of how bad flu can get. And so, again, last year was a reminder that flu can be really, really bad.
0: Art, would you say that there were any lessons in particular that uh, health officials should take away from last year?
1: Well, I think we keep relearning the same lessons to a certain extent with flu. Um, A, that it can surprise us. B, we we really don't have as good an understanding as we would like about why we have these annual variations. C, we need a better flu vaccine, um, and people are obviously working on that. But D, um, at, at the end of the day, a flu vaccine is is safe, uh, it's uh, effect, more effective than other interventions we have against flu, um, and therefore uh, the fact that we have many people who are reluctant to accept flu vaccination is, is a continuing issue we need to address. And we really do need to convince the public uh, that, that, that the vaccine is, is safe uh, and, and is a good public health measure.
2: Yeah, I would definitely agree with what Art just said. Um, Flu vaccine is the single best way to protect yourself and your loved ones from the flu and from being hospitalized or dying from the flu. Uh, You know, CDC estimated last year 80,000 Americans died from flu, and 80% of them uh, uh, likely did not receive the flu vaccine. So uh, of the 80,000 Americans who died last year of the flu, Uh, CDC estimates that 80% did not receive the flu vaccine. So what that indicates is that flu vaccine is effective.
0: Yeah, and I want to linger on this point uh, for just a moment longer, uh, just to underscore what you guys are saying. I also saw in a report that the World Health Organization has apparently named vaccine hesitancy, uh, the notion that some people, even though they can get a vaccine, they still don't do it, (laughs) as one of the top 10 health threats of 2019. So World Health Organization saying around the world, Even though people may have access to the vaccine, their reluctance to do so is still posing a a, a huge threat to uh, our our health and well-being around the world. Can you guys expand on that a little bit? uh, Why it is that that could pose such a big health threat? Because it's not just yourself that you're putting at risk necessarily, it's uh, the folks around you as well. Is that right, uh, George?
2: Yeah, definitely. So uh, one thing that we need to keep in mind is that uh, there are lots of folks who can't actually be vaccinated. They may be too young to be vaccinated or they have medical problems that prevent them from getting certain vaccines. Uh, You know, my nephew is a a prime example. Um, He's a baby. And when he turned six months old, that's when he got his uh, first flu shot, because that's how old you need to be um, whenever uh, in order to receive the flu shot. Uh, but before six months old, he, he didn't have the flu shot. And so, um, you know, everyone around him, his parents, his uh, family members, friends, neighbors, they're the ones who um, could protect him by being vaccinated and so that they wouldn't pass along the flu virus to him. Uh, this whole uh, the issue with vaccine hesitancy is, I agree, a big problem. Um, we're seeing that right now, for example, in Washington state. They're having a measles outbreak now with dozens of cases of measles. And the vast majority of folks who are getting measles are children who've never been vaccinated. And so when you have a population that doesn't have a high vaccination rate, uh, there's always a risk that um, a virus will be introduced and uh, it'll spread like wildfire because the, the community doesn't have immunity.
0: And Art, is there anything that you would add on to that?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, particularly when it comes to vaccinating children, um, you know, parents love their children. They want to do what they perceive as best for their child uh, in terms of health and other things. And and we need to start with that understanding. Um, Unfortunately, there's quite a bit of uh, misinformation about the safety and efficacy of the many vaccines that we routinely give to to children and and the, the few we give to adults, so that many people have concerns about the safety or the wisdom of of, of giving vaccines. Uh, They've come to believe that perhaps the illnesses are not very serious or that natural infection is somehow better than uh, vaccine-induced immunity. And and, and these are really potentially dangerous misconceptions. Uh, People sometimes believe, for example, in the case of measles, as George mentioned, uh, well, that's a mild childhood illness. Um, maybe in malnourished kids in Africa, it's a problem. The reality is that uh, about 1 in a 1,000 children with measles will die, even in well-nourished populations. Uh, And so, for example, in Europe at the moment, there are tens of thousands of cases of measles uh, and close to 100 deaths in children who didn't need to die. Um, So um, the idea that these are mild illnesses, that the vaccines are a threat, that you're better off getting uh, or, or taking the risk of not being va- get, uh, not taking uh, the, the, the risk of illness is, is not so bad. I, I think are misconceptions we we really need to work on.
0: All right, and to round things out, let's just give people a little bit more uh, useful information about what they should be thinking about at this point in the flu season, uh, how to prevent it or how to deal with it if uh, they do happen to get overtaken by the flu. So, uh, George, at this point, still worth getting a flu shot?
2: Absolutely. Uh, we're still in the middle of flu season, so there's still some months left in it, And which means that if you haven't gotten your flu shot, definitely go out and get your flu shot. Uh, encourage your family members to get one and your friends and relatives. So it's not too late. I think that's the message uh, that we want people to take away from this. There's also the um, usual prevention measures that, that you can also take, uh, remembering, of course, that uh, getting your flu vaccine is the number one way to protect yourself and your family. Uh, But of course, you know, uh, covering your cough, washing your hands, uh, you know, staying home when you're sick and and all of those measures. Now, if you do get sick, Uh, You may uh, want to call your doctor and see if if, uh, he or she can prescribe you an antiviral medicine, which can shorten the length of uh, your illness. And that's especially important for sort of the more vulnerable populations uh, that I've mentioned before, which are young children, uh, people with chronic medical conditions such as asthma, diabetes, um, heart disease, etc., um, older adults. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can call your doctor and see if maybe um, that antiviral medicine uh, would be helpful for you.
0: Um, do Do you guys think that given that this year is a milder year, that this message needs to be put out even more forcefully, that, you know, even though it is a, a, a mild year, people still need to be mindful of this issue, George?
2: I think it's, it's good to be consistent. Um, one of the things that... Um, that I, I'm, I'm realizing that people do is that depending on the severity of the season, they might actually do different things. But when in reality, we want them to do the same thing every single year, get in the habit of doing the same thing every single year. And, and the number one thing is, of course, to get vaccinated. Um, but yeah, we, we absolutely um, think that every year is a good opportunity to reinforce the same public health messages to the public.
0: And Art Gold, anything you'd add to that? No, George nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) As expected. And that was Art Reingold with UC Berkeley's School of Public Health and Dr. George Hahn, who's with Santa Clara County's Public Health Department. You're listening to KCBS's In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into some of the major stories shaping news in the Bay Area and beyond, This week, we're helping you steer clear of flu and cold this season. Up next, we've got some bad news for some parents out there. When it comes to protecting your kids from the common cold, you may think that you got a good handle on things, but new survey results suggest a majority of you, at least in some ways, are doing it wrong. We
3: did a study, a national poll, to try and determine what strategies parents use when they're trying to prevent colds in their children.
0: That's Dr. Gary Freed, who is a professor of pediatrics and health policy at the University of Michigan and also a pediatrician at the Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor. So here's what that survey turned up.
3: A significant number of parents use non-evidence-based strategies or strategies that actually have been shown to make no difference at all in preventing colds.
0: According to the survey, 71% of parents subscribe to methods that are based on little more than folklore. Now, we're going to get into some of those methods in a second, but before we do, let's first get our bearings in all this and start with a primer on how colds actually are spread.
3: Colds are spread by viruses, by germs. That's the only way you get a cold, is you get a virus from another person. Almost always that comes in the form of transmission by some type of respiratory secretion, meaning mucus or spit or anything that kind of has to do with coming out of your nose or your mouth.
0: The bottom line, when we're talking about stopping the spread of colds, It's all
3: about stopping the transmission of viruses.
0: So every method that does work, it's going to stop viruses from getting from one person to another.
3: That's why washing hands is so important. And that's why teaching children not to put their hands near their mouth or nose is important.
0: Now what about those misconceptions? We mentioned those folklore methods a moment ago. One of those pieces of folklore that the study took aim at is the common wisdom that going outside with wet hair, water in your hair, can give you a cold. Dr. Freed says, not so much.
3: In fact, wet hair doesn't cause colds. Viruses cause colds.
0: Then there's those parents who think that keeping their kids indoors or keeping them outdoors has something to do with contracting a cold.
3: It's kind of funny that around half of parents said they encourage their children to spend more time indoors to avoid catching a cold. And around 25% said they encouraged them to spend more time outdoors to prevent a cold.
0: And uh, here's one that's going to hurt for some of us. The study also discussed the belief among some parents that they can prevent colds by giving their kids vitamins or other supplements. On this point, Dr. Fried is unequivocal.
3: There is no supplement or vitamin that will prevent the cold.
0: Dr. Fried says that while these methods, for the most part, probably won't harm your child they are a waste of time, attention, and ultimately money. The main thing
3: is that parents honestly could be using their limited resources for their children for things that could really have a positive impact on their kids.
0: Now, if you are feeling defensive about any of this, you're not alone. I was actually feeling the same way when it comes to that wet hair example is that if you let your body get too cold your immune system is damaged and so having wet hair might drop your overall body temperature is there anything to that or am i speaking complete nonsense right now
3: Well you're not speaking complete nonsense but that would be in a real extreme situation for someone just walking outside with wet hair not going to make a bit of difference the likely these things have been passed down from generation to generation And most of them probably came into being before we knew that there were germs that were ever invented. And people tried to figure out, you know, to make sense of the world around them. And sometimes they would find associations between certain activities and getting a cold. But it doesn't mean that those associations were causal They just were simply associated. I think what happens is colds usually happen in the winter when people are cold. And the reason they happen more often in the winter is because those types of viruses that cause colds thrive more in the winter than they do in the summer and in the spring and in the fall. So again, I think people were just trying to make sense of the world around them. Now, fortunately, we know that viruses are the things that cause colds. And what we really need to do is try and stop the transmission of viruses and spend honestly more time on that than worrying about wet hair.
0: (sighs) All right. All right. Uh, Well, let's talk about uh, the vitamin and supplement bomb you just dropped. Uh, You're saying that that method does not work to prevent colds. Vitamin supplements, not an effective method. Uh, according to your survey, though, a full 51% of parents are using that method. Uh, I'm sure those parents would be surprised to hear you say this.
3: Oh, I'm sure they would. Because if you look at the packaging, it's all very clever. And But if you actually look at the data and the studies that have been done, um, there's no magic bullets, and these things really honestly don't work. But that again, that doesn't stop them from being very heavily marketed because they're not regulated in the same way that drugs are. So companies can actually get away with, in effect, making people think their products are more effective than they really are.
0: And so uh, another, as you already mentioned, another thing that your survey turned up is that So there are these misconceptions out there. A majority of parents do buy into some of these folklore traditions, but an even larger number say that they at least believe in the notion that hygiene is a really important way to prevent uh, disease and the spread of cold. What does this research say to you about where we are uh, as a society in getting a, a good handle on where the evidence is and becoming committed to using evidence-based methods uh, when we're talking about health and, and cold prevention?
3: Well, it was really quite a relief, to be honest with you. And it was really encouraging to be able to see that so many uh, parents were both aware of what they could do that could really make a difference and actually practiced it. A lot of it, you know, interestingly, isn't rocket science. It's really just interrupting the patterns of transmission of disease. It's hard work because you have to be really vigilant keep at it. And, you know, toddlers are always putting their hands in their mouths and their nose. That's kind of what they do for a living. So it's really um, tough for parents. And like I said, it takes a lot of energy, but that's really the best methods that exist to try and prevent colds in kids.
0: Yeah, it is pretty interesting that point that you just raised—that we all are really trying very hard to make sense of the world around us. Sometimes in not terribly uh, educated ways. I've—I spent a number of years uh, living in a in a different country. I'm not going to name them by name because I don't want to single them out. But I was struck by how many folklore traditions they had in terms of what they thought was able to uh, prevent colds. And I was kind of you know smugly thinking about that while I was over there. But then I, I reflected on all the ways that. Yeah, I was raised uh, with misconceptions about colds as well. So this just seems to be a really prevalent fact of uh, the human existence, I guess.
3: Absolutely. That's we try and make sense of what's around us. And it doesn't mean that parents are trying to you know, do bad things to their kids. They're trying to do things that they think will help their children. So again, different things get passed down in different families and all of it seeking to make sense of the world around them.
0: That was Dr. Gary Freed. He is a professor of pediatrics and health policy at the University of Michigan, who, aptly enough, spoke to us earlier this week just as his part of the country was being pounded by a freezing polar vortex. Speaking of cold,
3: I'll be sure not to go outside with wet hair, I promise.
0: <laughs> and this has been KCBS's In Depth. You can find past episodes of the program online at kcbsradio.com and, of course, wherever fine podcasts are streamed. Do tune in again next week as we dive in once again to one of the top stories shaping life here in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Stay healthy, everybody. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 1069 KCBS.